Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSat certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. So I've got Amy on the line. Amy, welcome to the show. What's your question? Well, I have a question about what um, healthy sexuality looks like when Mm. a sex addict is in recovery. One of the things we know about research and sex addicts is that they don't necessarily want sex with their own wife. And so, to me, that says he's in really good recovery because he does want that with you. He has been two years sober. He has been in three facilities. And I suspect that's how he's wanting closeness with you. Well, welcome to AppSats Radio Betrayal Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Carol Jorgensen Sheets. A little under the weather today, so please excuse this very low voice. I'm glad that I can talk. I was pretty sick prior to. And, you know, today we're going to be talking about gaslighting. So many of you know that um, gaslighting can occur when the sex addict who is not in recovery turns the table on you and makes you feel crazy for thinking or believing something that indeed is true, but he doesn't want to be exposed. So he makes you think that you're paranoid or seeing things or believing things that aren't accurate. So you begin to question yourself. I had a funny situation happen with my husband. We were talking about um, money and, and I said to him, did you deposit um, our Florida insurance check in the bank? And he said, yes. And the thing is, this was to go into a separate account that was solely my account. And yet it did look like I had that insurance check in my account. And I said, well, how did you do that? And he said, I just deposited it. And I said, well, honey, I mean, where'd you get the deposit slips? I keep those. And he said, "Um, I don't know. I I must have run into one. I don't know. You know, he was kind of blowing me off, but he really did think he had deposited it. He said, maybe I deposited it without a deposit slip. And I said, this just doesn't make sense to me. You're not one to make deposits in accounts that you don't know anything about. And I just started kind of interrogating him and trying to figure out what the deal was. It just wasn't making sense. And he looks at me and he kind of raises his voice and he goes, stop gaslighting me, Carol. Stop gaslighting me. And I said, I'm not gaslighting you, honey. I just don't, I can't figure this out. Well, it turned out that um, I found the check and it had not been endorsed or cashed. And the next day I went up to him and I said, honey, where did, in the world did you hear gaslighting? And he, I said, I didn't even know you knew what that term was. And he said, well, I, heard, I hear you talking about it. I've heard you talking about it. And I said, well, let me tell you, the, the definition, the true definition of gaslighting is where you are purposefully trying to make your partner, your spouse, your loved one, 
feel like they're going crazy to get them off the track. And although I may have, I may have been making you feel crazy, and I'm sorry about that, I would never purposefully do that to you. And he looked at me and he said, hey, I'm sorry that I used that term in, uh, in the wrong way. You know, uh, John Gottman, who is a family and marital therapist who actually does research on couples, says that what you need to do when you are in conflict with your mate is if you can't work it out, you need to detach and then you need to have a soft repair attempt to get back on the right track. Now, we're talking about gaslighting today, and that is, you know, obviously an intentional and purposeful manipulation to try to get somebody to hold you from being accountable. So I'm not talking about John Gottman's approach when I talk about soft behavioral repair attempts. Because, you know, when I work with clients, when I have uh, clients that have sex addiction or I work with clients who are experiencing partner betrayal, we oftentimes have to point out the gaslighting that occurs. Sometimes it is absolutely intentional and sometimes it can occur unconsciously and you've got to point it out so that somebody can see how they're using it to minimize, rationalize, or justify their behavior. But once you begin to get healthy as a couple, then it's absolutely okay to have disagreements about things and come back and try to get back on the right track. So think about your relationship right now. You know, where are you on that continuum? One to ten. Ten is, whoa, we've been in recovery for a while. Things are going well. Uh, I feel less triggered, he uh, is less triggered, and we're rocking it. You know, we're doing really well. We're probably a, a nine, an eight and a half. I doubt that you would say ten. And then two is, you know what, we don't seem to be making much headway. His recovery isn't good. Um, I am triggered constantly, and a lot of times I just don't feel understood by my husband, um, supported by him, validated or acknowledged. That would be way over on the other continuum. And then hopefully for the majority of my listeners, you're a six or above, where you can see that some progress has been made. You know, when, when, a sex addict is in good recovery. They begin to look at things through your eyes. They begin to develop, to develop empathy. And hopefully will not, um, will, will not occur as much, if at all. Because truly, if you're sitting there and you're having a disagreement with your husband and you're absolutely feeling like he, he is calling you crazy, then you need to back off and figure out what is going on right then and there about the issue that you're disagreeing about. 
you know, at the beginning of the show, the intro was on sexuality and healthy sexuality, especially when sex addiction has occurred. And I just worked with a couple and I was talking about, you know, cuddling and, and uh, sex. And he said very appropriately, because he's in good recovery, he said, well, she really wants more cuddling, and I know that. That's not really my thing, but I go ahead and do that for her um, because that is actually what makes her feel close. And he goes, and if I want to actually make her feel even better, I do some laundry or I put away the dishes or I do the extra things at home um, to make her appreciate me, to make her want to be with me. And we all know that that can go uh, miles in terms of making you feel like somebody is on your side. You know, I, I sometimes call that a living amends when a partner, uh, I'm sorry, an addict is going that extra mile because he wants to make the partner's life easier. And, um, I always advocate for that. I advocate for that from both parties. I mean, when you put your Gary Chapman, Dr. Gary Chapman from The Love Languages says, you really should work on putting your partner first as much as you can. Now, that can sound codependent, but what it really means is look at life through your partner's eyes and figure out what can I do to make his or her life a little bit simpler, a little bit easier. And when you do that, you are um, definitely working on connecting emotionally. And that's always a good thing. Now, this same sex addict said to me in front of his wife, yeah, she never initiates sex. And so I don't initiate it either. said... I, I saw this look on her face, and we'll call her Susie. I said, Susie, um, what was that look for? And she said, I can't believe you just said he had never initiates sex. He initiates sex all the time. Well, it turned out when we broke that down, Susie um, was actually right. He did initiate sex, but he would initiate sex only to the point of cuddling And if she was responsive, they would have sex. If she wasn't responsive, he would back off. So he didn't call that initiating sex because what he initiated was cuddling. And she said, that's what you've been doing? And he goes, yeah, for over a year. I have not initiated sex unless you were responsive. I've initiated cuddling. Well, she said, well, no wonder I've liked sex better because I'm getting more of my cuddling needs met. And, you know, if you think about life and what you need from your, from your spouse, what is it that you really appreciate about that physical intimacy? Do you appreciate just having the time to be together and to talk in bed and maybe look at your iPads together or read a book together and... And just spend some time relaxing together. Or 
do you like that cuddling, that caressing each other's body, that, you know, rubbing each other's back, that playing footsies and warming up your feet together? Or do you actually like sensual touch? And if you've experienced betrayal, what can you do to stay in the moment and stay focused on what is happening in the bedroom without flashing back to some of the terrible, terrible images, ideas, thoughts, um, and experiences that the addict has had in the past? Well, it's definitely about staying in the moment. It's about having your eyes wide open, uh, experiencing sex by by having lights on, by looking at each other, by talking to yourself and maybe even to each other. You know, talking to yourself might look like, you know, I know that I am the most precious person in his life and he had a disease that took him far away, but we're back together and we're working as a team and I love this man and I want to feel safe with him. Or... I know as he looks at me, he is so happy that I have offered him grace and we are together again. So that's that's that you can uh, give to yourself. And maybe, you know, they say that um, sex talk next to visuals is the most important thing you can do in the bedroom. And I don't mean... um, Talking nasty. I mean talking about, honey, I love you. I love you so much. That makes me feel good. You're the best person ever. I am glad that we're working on our relationship. I need you in my life. That really feels fantastic. Those kinds of things. That can be very hard to do when you've been betrayed. And I know it. To be that vulnerable. And to set yourself up really is an investment in your emotional love bank. And only time will tell whether it was safe to do it. You know, I I know that you kind of know when things are safe, but there's always that sense of conscience on your shoulder going, well, is it really safe? Can I really do this? Will he really be honest? And the men I work with in sexual addiction, when they're in true recovery, they are so thankful to be present with their wife again and to be rid of the disease and to be right there beside her um, in all sorts of ways. So I want to give you a little hope because especially this show is about relationships that have it gotten as healthy as they need to be and you know we have a lot of partners out there that their husbands aren't in good recovery or they're really really struggling or they got one foot in the door and one foot out of the door and so they are responding to old behaviors that keep them distant from their wife and so today I'm interviewing Sarah Morales, who is a gas lighting expert. Some of you may have heard about her because she's, uh, she is just making a national um, 
reputation for herself on gaslighting. Uh, gaslighting is so devastating. And in many, many relationships, the gaslighting experience is not always the same. And so she wanted to talk with us today about the varying motives of the gaslighter and what it can look like and how to free yourself from the effect of gaslighting if it occurs in your relationship. Because it's where, you know, just in the same way as you have to learn assertiveness, you have to also learn when it's happening and know how to handle it, how to walk away. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, so so tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this topic. Well, you know, I it was I totally happened on it on accident. I was working as a coach um, for partners with a CSAT in town in Austin, Texas. That's where I live. And he and one of his interns had done a workshop on gaslighting the year before. And so this year they asked me to take a look at it as um, as a partner and as a partner coach and see if I could contribute anything or what thoughts I might have. And I hadn't even heard of it before. And as I started to read up on it and look over their workshop material and read the, the book that they had used, I was like, oh, my word, this is, this is what I experienced. I, you know, the, the same thing that I hear now as a coach when women or partners hear about uh, the, what gaslighting is, they'll say, I never knew that there was a word for what I had gone through. That's what I experienced in that moment. And it was a door that opened. Uh, And since then, it's just something I've become more and more passionate about and wanted to study and identify the different nuances. It's a very, very complex, nuanced thing. And so I'm I'm continually learning five years later. Well, so it, it really kind of happened by happenstance, and then you learned about it, and then you realized that that had also occurred in your own life, and it, it kept you interested, and you wanted to advocate for partners so that they would understand what gaslighting is and figure out how to deal with it. What would you say the definition for gaslighting is? I'm so glad you asked that, because if you if you Google it online, you're going to get a kind of long definition that can be a little bit confusing. So I kind of tweaked it a little bit, and I have my own kind of working definition. And what I say is the the definition of gaslighting is whenever one person attempts to convince another person that what they perceive, believe, think, or feel. The feelings one is a very important one that a lot of people don't they don't know about, and that's a very, very important one. Any of those four things, if they are trying to convince that person that, that it's inaccurate or invalid, then they're attempting to gaslight the other person. And so can you give our listening audience an idea, an example of how an addict might gaslight his wife? I can, Absolutely. So a very common one that a lot of partners hear when their um, addict is in recovery is when they try to um, put up a boundary or a boundary request 
or ask for better therapy or any of these kinds of things, uh, the addict will say something along the lines of stop trying to control me or my recovery. That is a very, very common phrase that a gaslight writer might use. That is a common phrase, and that would be mm-hmm. gaslighting because? Because, so what that is going to do is very, very important. This is where I start to kind of geek out and get excited. Um, that, yes, the phrase is important, but whether it's gaslighting or not depends on what happens in the person hearing the phrase, right? So it's, it's so important to understand that the power, our authentic power, yes, it's identifying what the gaslighter might be doing, but really it's identifying what I heard you say kind of right before I came in, which is kind of understanding that we have the power to walk away, right? So the analogy that I use is like a bow and arrow, right? Like if someone is shooting a bow and arrow, we can step out of range and understanding that we have the power. If we can identify that gaslighting is happening, that an arrow is coming at us, then it's not going to hit us. So how is that gaslighting then, right? If, If someone says, stop trying to control me or my recovery, If gaslighting happens, the person who hears that thinks, oh, no, I don't want to control him or her or their recovery, so I better retract that boundary I just tried to enforce. So they doubt themselves. They doubt their belief that that was a healthy request. They lose touch with their truth and with their needs. And so there becomes a disconnect between them and what is the reality of what's going on. That's if gaslighting happens. If gaslighting doesn't happen, the person says, you know what, I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to control me and my safety. So my boundary stands. What what the other person did to try to gaslight didn't change. What changed in those two scenarios was the response in the person. And that's what determines whether or not gaslighting actually happens. Well, and I'm so glad you clearly, appsats.org, the partner trained sensitive coaching and clinician program, they talk about the fact that a woman who shares what would make her feel safe um, will oftentimes say, boy, honey, it just feels to me like you could benefit by increasing your recovery program. And I would feel safe if you um, went to a meeting because that mm-hmm. would tell me that you're getting the support you need, and that would make me feel like you're working on the program. And, you know, so long in, in Essanon and um, COSA, there was that mentality of you work on your side of the street and I'll work on mine, and we'll get back together years from now when obviously we're, in, we're both in good recovery. And mm-hmm. that's just not the way it should be. This isn't a relational issue. And because it is a relational issue, the wife should have a say in what makes her feel safe. Absolutely. So Absolutely. what do you believe is one of the misunderstandings or myths about gaslighting? That one is one that I believe keeps a lot of people from getting the help around gaslighting because they get scared. And that is that somebody that gaslights is a monster. They're evil. They, um, they're intending to harm me. Um, 
Another one is that very similar is that all gaslighters are nice or narcissists or on the so, you know sociopathy kind of scale that kind of a thing. When the the truth actually is that gaslighting happens on a scale, right? Um, large large percentage of gaslighting things that happen are really on the kind of the more innocent side because a person just isn't self-aware. Now you've got the other side of the scale. Well, yes, you do have the person that is intentionally trying to break their person, but that's a very, very small percentage of gaslighting experiences. So that misunderstanding, again, when people Google gaslighting and they read all of these articles that are more geared towards the people on the, the more damaging side of the scale, they don't connect because they don't see that level necessarily. Some do, but some don't see that level, and then they get confused, and they don't, well, that's, then, that's not, then I'm not experiencing gaslighting. So there's a, a big misunderstanding that all gaslighting is lumped on that one end of the scale where the narcissist kind of, the true narcissist kind of lies. You know, I'm so glad you said that because truly I've been doing a sex addiction show for over five years. And, you know, you hear professionals that talk about the sociopath, the narcissist, um, the pathological. And most of the men that I work with, they are not those things. There is some Mm -hmm. narcissism, you know, that is a byproduct of sex addiction because sex addiction is a selfish, secretive illness. And so, yes, there's going to be some narcissism there. But it's like these guys, when they uh, get liberated from the disease, they actually develop the empathy they need to really feel lots of remorse for the way they hurt Mm -hmm. their wives. Um, So uh, what I hear you saying is that there is this myth that gaslighters are horrible, horrible demons and they're, they're out to get you. And although that is on the sociopathic side of the scale, the majority of sex addicts are not that. They may not even realize that they're, they're making their wives feel crazy. Exactly. What I have experienced, um, so I should back up and say that, even when I first started studying gaslighting, I was like, uh-oh, I do this, right? Like, like I understood that when I was trying to tell my child to maybe not be so overreactive when they hurt themselves, so dramatic, but I was basically telling them that their feelings weren't okay in that moment. Was I trying to do anything other than kind of teach my child how to navigate their emotions and maybe have a break for myself too? No, it was a fairly innocent thing, but it was still gaslighting, right? Now you come to what you just brought up, um, which is the gaslighter or the person that gaslights when they're in recovery, right? They're, not, they're no longer doing it necessarily to hide their addiction, to keep things a secret or to deflect. What I have experienced is that the majority of gaslighting that happens in that scenario is because of shame, the shame-based response, or a lack of connection and awareness to their feelings and their needs. It's really nothing more sinister than that. It's shame and a lack of awareness. Uh huh, absolutely. And so, how long have you, have you been purposefully focused on helping people to understand gaslighting, uh, the definition as well as the example, so that they can change their patterns of communication? I've been doing a number of different things around the topic of gaslighting for about four years. 
I was doing that in conjunction with a number of other kind of partner-sensitive topics. It's been a little bit more recently where I've been challenged to kind of really step into the gaslighting specialist arena and really try to go broader and bigger with this topic because everyone tells me all the time, like, I wish this was here and I wish this was there. And when are you going to do something that's for the person that actually gaslights so that they can learn how to not gaslight? There's so many needs around this particular topic. But that was probably about six months ago that I really stepped into, I want to really, really focus 80% of my work on embracing and branching out into the Gaslight Specialist. Absolutely. So tell us about some of the workshops you run and some of the ways that you intervene with people um, where gaslighting occurs. Okay. Uh, At the moment, I don't have any workshops. What I'm putting together and actually very excited about it's not complete yet but I'm hoping to finish it wrap it up and launch it in the beginning of 2019 is actually an online uh, video kind of course for people to go through where it's six weeks in conjunction with coaching a live coaching group so that people can study the material that I've been gathering for the past five years and the the um, worksheets and assessments and things that go with it and they do that on their own time then they meet with me in a group context, group coaching, and we go through what they've learned in their workshop. So that I'm hoping to launch at the beginning of 2019. Maybe if I'm really on it, I can get it going in December. That's the thing I'm most excited about right now. I do individual sessions as well uh, where I can focus in with people on the things that they are experiencing, help them kind of dissect what part of it is gaslighting, how are the different ways that they can potentially respond um, what their truth is in the situation, really getting their eyes on it and understanding yeah. it from a very deep level. What do you think is the most popular tool that you use to kind of recognize gaslighting behavior? The one that I enjoy the most and, and a lot of my clients who really love is the acronym that I actually learned in my APSAT training, which is DARVO. So anybody that's been through their training will be like, I know Darvo. So what that stands for is defend, attack, reverse victim offender. And the part that I really kind of try to hone in on with my clients is the reverse victim offender. And what we're talking about there is a reversal of the roles. So when you go into a conversation and you end up leaving the com- you go into the conversation wanting to talk to your person about something you need or something that upset you or something along those lines and you end up leaving feeling like you were the one who did something wrong, like you asked too much or, you know, where there there is a reversal of those roles. And um, so that's one example. Another example is anytime you want to try to ask for something and the other person becomes a victim in any way, like maybe their boss or their family of origin or somehow the role of that person doing something is reversed and put on to the blame is put on to somebody else. So that victim feeling um, is something that I teach my lady, my, my ladies. I mostly work with ladies, but my clients to uh, to look for and identify. And anytime they feel that, to let that be a red flag. Wait a second, these roles are being reversed here. I need to recognize that gaslighting is happening. Yeah, and if this was a term 
that people are hearing from the first time. It's called DARVO. And again, very slowly go over what each one of those stand for. It's Absolutely. an acronym. Yep. D for defend. A for attack. R for reverse. V for victim. And O for offender. DARVO. Truly, it is a term that says when you're in a dispute, some conflict, an exchange with the other person, and all of a sudden you're defend you're you were making a statement about how you felt, and now you're having to defend your position, and mm-hmm. you feel attacked, and you feel like you're the offender as opposed to you know, the survivor of this or the victim, yes. you can almost bet that DARVO is going on. Absolutely. And um, you can Google that term and find out, you know, even, even read a little bit about it because, again, sometimes the addict will resort to those behaviors to protect his addiction. And that is a person that is probably not in good recovery. You know, if he's in good recovery, he wouldn't need to defend his behaviors. He would be working on empathizing and acknowledging and validating how you feel, Um, which is something that Sarah really talks a lot about, that, you know, sex addiction is on a continuum, and you've got men that are, um, deep into the addiction, even if they say they're in recovery, and then all the way to men in really good recovery. And men in good recovery can make mistakes, and they, commute, they can communicate mm-hmm. poorly, or they can um, perhaps attack or make you feel like you have to defend yourself, but you won't necessarily feel like the offender. You won't feel like you've done something bad to the sex addict. When you start feeling that way, DARVO is probably occurring. So now I want to ask you, you know, in the sex addiction world, you know, can you give me a common phrase used to gaslight the partner? You know, you did earlier when you said, you know, don't Mm -hmm. work my program. Um, Mm -hmm. There's some other things that an addict might say, that we can stay attuned to so that we can at least check our own motives and intentions at the door. Well, I think a common thing that um, a sex addict might say when they are not in recovery, before I talk about something that they might say when they're in recovery, something that they might Uh say if they're not not in recovery, is that what you're looking for? Absolutely. Uh, Yes, okay. So a very common one is, let's say the partner um, thinks that something is up. Her gut is just screaming at her like, he is not telling me the truth right now, or he was just looking at that person in an inappropriate way, any, any kind of thing along those lines. And her gut is screaming at her. And so she brings it up to him and says, hey, you know, what's going on? Like, I don't feel safe. You know, you were looking at that person in a way that made me very uncomfortable. And for him to turn around and say, you're just, you're imagining things. If you weren't so insecure, you wouldn't feel this way. So you kind of, you should probably just let it go and get over it. It's a very common one. Obvious. 
Yeah, obviously they are not um, being sensitive to their partner. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm sure this has happened to our listening audience before. A man and a woman may disagree about the reality of what just happened. But Mm -hmm. oftentimes if a partner continues to um, impressive on that person why she felt that way, what she saw, what she heard, that eventually the sex addict will go, okay, yes, I was, I was looking at her. Mm-hmm. It's almost mm-hmm. like they have their own denial that they have to break through before they can come clean and honest with themselves mm-hmm. and then come clean with their partner. Have you noticed that? Mm-hmm. I have. Again, it's kind of that combination of shame, right? Like maybe maybe the first very first thing is shame. Like, dang it, I did it again, right? Or dang it, you know, like when am I ever going to be able to beat this thing? Or, or dang it, I hurt my wife again, and that makes me feel really bad, right? That sh- initial shame response. So then it goes into, well, I don't want to be that. So no, I didn't do that. But that happens lightning fast without an awareness, right? Those two things, shame and awareness. They're probably not even aware that all of those things just happen so lightning fast. And so the lack of awareness then causes them to go into that kind of denial. And then, like you said, when she pushes it and says, no, I'm not letting this go, like I saw it, then then potentially and hopefully he slows down and and kind of checks in with himself and starts asking himself some questions like, okay, what, what was really going on? Did I really do this thing? And then, yes, yes, you're right. You're right. I did. I did. And that, you know, that is a a wonderful way to kind of interrupt that pattern. And, you know, I know that you typically give tips to help partners begin to change the pattern of interaction between them and their gaslighters. So what tips do you give them? First and foremost, the thing that I tell the ladies is anytime you feel, or the partners, anytime you feel gaslighting is happening, to give yourself permission to walk away. You don't have to continue to engage. Um, often it will be a thing of our high empathy, the partner's high empathy gets engaged, and so we start feeling, you know, connected to the other person and, quote, bad for them, right, until we want to kind of fix it, right? But instead to say, you know what, right now I need to get a clear mind. That's one of the things about gaslighting is it causes confusion and a fog and muddies everything. So giving yourself permission to walk away, take a pause, and then get clear. So how you get clear is by asking yourself some questions. What just happened? What is my perspective? What are my feelings about what just happened? That's a really important one because we can get stuck in our head trying to explain why he might say that or why he might have done that, and we skip over how it made us feel regardless of the reasons why. So it's very important to ask ourselves, what was my perspective? What was my feeling? What was my opinion of what happened? Bringing it back to what our reality is and connected with us. Because if we can do that, then again, going back to that example I used at the beginning, then guessing doesn't happen because we don't get disconnected from our truth, from what we know is real. We stay grounded in that. As you get more aware, you can do that real time, and you don't have to walk away. But initially, almost always, you have to kind of walk away and get your journal out or get a worksheet out and, and kind of journal those things so that you can get really clear. 
but those are the two top things that I, I give as kind of little action steps for people to do. Well, you know, and that seems like a very simple thing that partners could actually do. I mean, it's interesting because when I talk to parents about parenting, I say there are four goals of misbehavior, and they are power, attention, because they feel inadequate or they want revenge. And I say, you determine that based on your own feelings. And then I say the first step is to disengage from the behavior because you really mm-hmm. need that time to get away from it, to process it, and decide what is the next logical choice. And that's kind of what I hear you saying, that if you believe gaslighting has occurred, first thing to do is to get out of the situation, walk away, mm-hmm. take a break, mm-hmm. go to the bathroom, do whatever you need to do to disengage from the potential gaslighter. Exactly. And that is a really powerful tool. It's super simple. And mm-hmm. yet, unfortunately, lots of times when we're engaged in a disagreement with our spouse, we want mm-hmm. we want to keep talking about it until we get their buy-in. And with gaslighting, you're not going to get a buy-in. No, you're not. And I'll tell you what, that's one of the things that uh, was an epiphany for me as I was studying and studying about it, and that is that the majority of us stay in those conversations because of a deep, deep desire and need, just not in that relationship, to be seen and to be understood. So when you're being, you know, when you're a victim of Darvo and you're being attacked and you're trying to say, no, please see me, see that I'm not that way, it's hard to walk away. It's so hard to just walk away and say, you know what, they can have that opinion of me. I know that I'm not doing that thing. Or I know that I'm not, you know, feeling that way or whatever the the kind of attack might be. It's so hard because that's our intimate partner most of the time, right? Other people do death with us too, but in this context we're talking about our intimate partner, right? So that's that's part of that what is meant to be experienced in that relationship. So it's incredibly difficult. So when I start with the partners with their work, I tell them, you know what, don't worry about trying to do it in, in the moment. Awarenesses are going to come as you talk about these situations with safe or knowledgeable people and or journaling about them, right? Like it comes in hindsight. And the more you do it in hindsight, the more you're going to be able to begin to recognize it in the moment. So it's, it's really important to not, like, shame yourself or, you know, have expectations of being able to walk away now and, and be able to do it from this, you know, little podcast here, right? Like, it takes practice. It takes intention. Uh, it takes being dedicated to, I think this was gaslighting. Let me kind of tease it apart and take a look at it. Yeah, and, you know, what we're talking about, for our listening audience, is that you have to gain the self-esteem to know that you don't have to prove yourself to anybody, and especially mm-hmm. if somebody is disputing your reality, that's a time to just walk away and know that you need that boundary. You need that boundary to feel yep. safe, and you need that boundary to kind of realign yourself and decide, okay, now now what do I need from here? And... Um, 
we, we all know that when partners have been through sexual betrayal, their brain goes offline and they can't think or concentrate or focus as well because they're typically in a trauma response. And so yep. they may have had good self-esteem prior to the discovery, but now they really are second-guessing and doubting themselves. Mm-hmm. So what That's do you tell partners? Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, that's why safe people are so important, safe people to talk about um, gaslighting with. Absolutely. So how can our partners find safe people? Well, I would say, obviously, AppSats trained coaches or therapists. Who else? Uh, Sometimes I would say some of the other support groups are going to have some knowledge around gaslighting. It's really hit or miss. As we know, you know, there aren't necessarily the same experience in like an, an Esnon or a COSA. Those types of groups are going to be different from city to city, from experience to experience. Uh, BetrayalTraumaRecovery.org, all of the coaches on there are AppSats trained, so there are going to be a resource as well. Um, those are some great places to start looking for people that are going to be knowledgeable and safe and not uh, disregard I've had so many partners come to me and say, my therapist actually gaslit me too. They, when I tried to say my, my person is gaslighting me, they, my therapist ended up gaslighting me because they weren't knowledgeable. So uh, it's important to find somebody who understands and knows about it. Well, that's a really good point. Before we talk about how a therapist might do that, um, I do want to remind everybody that COSA and SNN are wonderful support groups. And, you know, They go by a philosophy that is, I believe, changing somewhat, and it's changing based on the composition of our partner groups. And partners Mm -hmm. are standing up for themselves more, and they are are saying, you know, we're not codependent, we're not sick, Mm -hmm. we were completely duped, and now we want to get healthy and safe in an unsafe situation. You know, Barbara Steffen's uh, most famous quote is, how do you find safety in an unsafe situation? And so we so appreciate any support group that is there to make partners feel that they have a place to, to vent, to talk about boundaries, and kind of find sanity in an insane mm-hmm. situation. Now, you reference therapists that don't know any better, and they aren't trained, mm-hmm. And they don't really understand about sexual betrayal. What's something that a therapist might say that would actually be gaslighting to the partner? Wow, I'm trying to think here. You know, any time for me, the the therapists that have gaslit clients and have come to me, it's been kind of more when they've sided in a couple session and they've kind of sided with the addict when the partner is trying to set boundaries. Um, I've heard so many women say that when they tried to enforce boundaries, even the therapist was like, yeah, you, you shouldn't really be telling him what to do kind of a thing. Instead of viewing it as, again, I'm asking for what I need in order to feel safe in this marriage. I'm not trying to control him. I'm trying to control my safety. And then the therapist coming back and saying, yeah, you kind of need to stay on your side of the street. That's probably one of the more common ones. Again, the therapists that aren't trauma-informed yet, they're still kind of going by that co-addict, codependent model. 
Yeah, and, and we find that that can happen in a therapist's office. That can happen with pastors and priests. Mm-hmm. Um, that can happen in your doctor's office. Um, and so very clearly, if, if a helping professional is, is giving you guidance that you and your own gut know is, is bad guidance, you know, whether that be as simple as, well, if you would have more sex with him, maybe he mm-hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't uh, stray from you. Or, as you indicated, um, oftentimes people don't understand that partners have to have boundaries to make them feel safe. They're not controlling their husband's. They're saying what they need to feel safe. So I just, I really appreciate you being willing to talk about this situation because it is really, really tough. And obviously you said, understandably, that gaslighting is something that we all can do. And I started out this show, you weren't on yet, Sarah, but I talked about the fact that mm-hmm. my husband said, stop gaslighting me. And what he was really saying is that I was making him feel crazy because I was wanting him to see my point of view. Mm-hmm. And even though I wasn't gaslighting him, it was a good reminder to me that I needed to back off, take a deep breath, and um, come back to this situation when I wasn't as charged or as um, aggressive. And so this is something that we can all do to each other. We really don't want to. And unfortunately, it happens more to partners when the addict is still hiding something, still protecting mm-hmm. or defending their, their old behaviors. So I encourage you to look up what gaslighting is. And, you know, I know, Sarah, that it is harmful when gaslighting occurs. And, you know, you've made it your mission to help partners recognize when it's happening and how to opt out of that interaction so that they understand the power in the exchange, and it's so interesting that we're talking about power, and your mm-hmm. first tip is disengage. That's one of the most powerful mm-hmm. things you can do. Um, and so as we end, how can people get a hold of you? What, how can they work with you as a coach? Explain what you do as a gaslighting coach and as, as a personal life coach for partners. Okay. Yeah, my kind of specialty, the place that I love to work with people the most is fairly soon after discovery, but yet there's a little bit of stability there. So when there's still a lot of confusion, a lot of disconnect, because I feel like the gaslighting component is crucial at that point to get clarity. So how do I do that? I, I work uh, right now mostly in individual sessions. I do have um, some kind of a structured kind of format that I can take people through if they want, if they like kind of class learning kind of things. I do have something like that. But my passion is being able to dive into their experiences with them and help them understand and see where their power is, where it could have been, those kinds of things. But I, I tie in uh, the idea of healthy boundaries and also being connected to our values because if we're not connected to those things, it's really hard. But to me, they're, they're kind of symbiotic, right? So how do I know what a healthy boundary is if I'm not connected to my values, right? And how do I keep a healthy 
boundary if I'm being if I don't know about gaslighting because if I try to enforce gaslighting but I don't have a healthy boundary. No, if I try to enforce a boundary, I said that backwards. If I try to enforce a boundary, but I don't know about gaslighting, when I try to enforce the boundary, I'm going to get gaslit, and it's going to be really, really difficult to hold a boundary. A lot of partners think, why is it so hard for me to hold this boundary? Well, it's likely because you're being gaslit around it, and you're being told it's too much, or you expect too much, or stop trying to control me, or any one of those number of things. So I like to focus on those three things for my passion. Gaslighting is my number one, and then boundaries and values and kind of tying them all together for the end result of helping partners get back to a place where they're no longer doubting themselves. They know their voice. They know their truth. And even if they start out speaking it a little bit shaky, like that quote, right, use your voice even if it shakes a little bit, that they come into their power. They come into clarity. They come into their truth and they find themselves in a, in a much clearer and stronger way than they maybe ever have. So then your mission is to empower these people to understand their own strength and their own truth. So how are you different than a clinician? Well, <laughs> quite a few ways. Um, first of all, as we all know, coaches don't diagnose mental illness, so they can get that one off the table because... Well, maybe we don't all know that, but we don't. Coaches don't diagnose uh, mental illness. But secondly, I don't work with someone who's in high trauma as much, right, because like you mentioned earlier, the brain goes offline, and it's really hard to do kind of more of the psycho-ed kind of stuff that I do to give the tools. As much as we want to use the tools when our brain goes offline, we just can't access them, kind of like you, you were talking about earlier, right? So um, if I were to get a call from somebody who is in high trauma, I would refer them to a therapist to kind of deal with some of their trauma and get be able to be in a place where they're able to get grounded and bring their brain back online more often and then receive the psychoeducation and the tools that I um, specialize in. Yeah, well, that makes total sense. And, you know, it's still unclear for a lot of our audience because they don't know the difference. And so clinicians work with the mental health of a patient or a client okay. and coaches work with the inherent strengths and, and empowering them and giving them psychoeducational um, information. And I am so happy that you have developed this specialty because it's, it's an important one and you seem to have done it in a way that is so balanced and, you know, you're not pathologizing anybody. You're helping them to find better ways of communicating with each other. So I want to thank you so much. One more time, what's your email address or your website? Ah, uh, yes, I didn't mention it. Thank you. My email address uh-huh. is kind of long. <laughs> it's Sarah with an H dot Morales dot life dot coach at gmail dot com. And my website, a little bit easier, it's just Sarah Morales, all one word, dot coach. Sarah Morales.coach is my website. Well, thank you so much. And keep us posted on your seminar that hopefully will start at the beginning of the new year. And we'll make sure to have you on so that we can uh, find out more about how you can psychoeducationalize us in understanding how to be assertive, how to have good boundaries, and how to interrupt the cycle of gaslighting. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Carol. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. So as you can see, 
Sarah is one of those women that has taken something very near and dear to her heart. Uh, she she kind of inherited it by virtue of her colleagues, and she um, has embraced it. She realized how important it was for for our partners to know more about it, and she is working on developing a curriculum that will keep you safe, sane, and educated. And, you know, you heard her say she does this with her kids. I mean, what we know is that almost anything in life that happens to us, or we can apply that in other areas of our life. So I appreciate you listening to the show. We'll be back next week for more Betrayal Recovery Radio. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll see you next week. For more information, go to absats.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.